listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you. Uh, We continue our summer series, Life in the Spirit, and... um, I'm really looking forward to this, to this time with you. I love this story, um, this story of Jairus and this story of this woman. It's interesting, you know, that we know his name, but we don't know hers. Uh, we know a lot about him and just a little about her. But I think it's going to, um, it's going to be nice uh, to, to learn more about that. The gospel writers are so different from one another I mean, Matthew, when he tells the story of Jesus, he organizes everything around these major themes. He has five major themes, and he'll organize the teachings of Jesus around those themes, and then also the stories about Jesus. So if you have one of those old red-letter Bibles, you know what I'm talking about? Maybe you've noticed as you read Matthew, it's like all the letters are in black and then they're in red. Like red, 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 red. And then all in black and all in red. Like if, if we tried to read the Gospel of Matthew as though it was like a documentary of Jesus' life, we would have imagined that he was like a mime until... He got ready to speak, and then he just talked and talked and talked and talked, and then he went back to just acting and kind of back and forth. But that's, that's probably not a historical depiction of Jesus as much as it is kind of Matthew's organization of the gospel. John, on the other hand, is very different. John tells his stories in these little episodes. Like reading the gospel of John is a bit like watching a sitcom on television. Like all, each little story has its own beginning, middle, and end. And you just kind of go from little story to little story. Like Jesus and the disciples are the main characters. You kind of see them in every one. But then you have lots of these kind of secondary or minor characters like the mother of Jesus or Nicodemus or the woman at the well in Samaria or the the paralytic who can't get down into the pool or the man born blind or Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So Matthew has his sermons and uh, John has his little episodes Luke, uh, Luke's very different too. Uh, Luke's telling of the gospel is very kind of geopolitical. You always know where you are and kind of when you are. Luke kind of starts the story in the days of Caesar. Like he's, he's depicting it almost like a, well, he is a historian and a physician, but he's kind of depicting it, kind of letting us know kind of from this third person, kind of third party perspective, what's happening. Mark, I love Mark. Mark has his own kind of unique way of telling the story. In fact, what Mark often likes to do is he'll start a little story and then he'll seem to go off on a rabbit trail and then he'll kind of come back around to the story again. Um, Like the the second story is kind of sandwiched in between the the larger story. Uh, I'll, I'll say a little bit here maybe or reveal a little bit about my my age, but when I was in college, uh, one of the cult classics that we all watched again and again and again, a film called The Princess Bride. Do you know this one? 
So The Princess Bride, is a, it's a delightful, it's very funny. It was a funny uh, novel, it's a funny movie. But The Princess Bride has an internal story about Buttercup, she's the princess, and her true love, Wesley. But then it has this outer story about a boy who's at home um, and can't go to school because he's sick, and he, his grandfather is reading him that story. It's kind of sandwiched in between there. Mark does that, but he does it again and again and again and again. And one of his kind of famous sandwiches, and this, this is not just me kind of saying this. This is like how biblical scholars, like professional folks who write about the Gospel of Mark, refer to these as Mark and sandwiches. And it's not, it doesn't sound very professional, but it, it's what they do nonetheless. And this is one of the famous ones, the story of Jairus and this woman. So Jairus, who's the ruler of synagogue, comes to Jesus and he says, my daughter is sick, like deathly ill. Will you come and pray for her? And Jesus is like, I'll be glad to. And so they're on their way. And on their way, this woman comes. And we learn about this woman. She kind of presses through the crowd and she touches Jesus, right? The hem of his garment, um, the old preachers used to say. And she gets healed. And then eventually, Jesus makes his way to, to Jairus' house. I mean, we just, thank you, Chanel, we just kind of heard the gospel story read. But the way that works, since the woman is kind of, her story is sandwiched in between the other story, I believe they're intended to be read together. In fact, I want you to look at some of these details. So here's a, here's a little chart that kind of compares these two main characters. So we have Jairus, and then you'll note that I'm referring, I'll refer to her as Veronica. So the Gospel in Mark never tells us her name, but church history refers to her as Veronica. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with the Stations of the Cross this, that we celebrate kind of on Passion Week, one of the Stations of the Cross that kind of goes through a, kind of an extra biblical story is a story of a woman, one of the time that Jesus falls, she kind of pats his face with a towel. Well, church history says the woman who pats Jesus' face with a towel is the woman who had this issue of blood for 12 years and was healed. And as she did that, his, the image of his face was on the towel, and that's an icon. So Veronica comes from that, like from the image is what her, names mean, her name means. And so, again, church history will refer to her as Saint Veronica. So I want to do the same, th same thing, too. I don't want her, kind of her to go nameless. Um, too many times, I think, we tell stories and women go unnamed. In fact, women are often marginalized, not just in our culture, but in a lot of cultures. And so I think we need to find ways to tell women's stories and talk about women's lives, women's health, women's kind of perspective. And so we'll try and do a bit of that here. So... Comparison and contrast, you know, his name is Jairus. We'll call her Veronica. He's a man and she's a woman. It, uh, his, there's a 12-year-old girl in the Jairus story. And it says this woman, Veronica, is sick for 12 years. Jairus, uh, he's the ruler of the synagogue. He's an important man. He kind of approaches Jesus from the front. He comes to Jesus and says, will you do me a favor, right? That kind of already presumes a certain amount of of um, station in life, right? He has an expectation that he can kind of go and speak to the, the popular rabbi. She, on the other hand, approaches Jesus from the back, right? She kind of sneaks, kind of hides, 
kind of moves through the crowd. As we said, he's the ruler of the synagogue, and I think this is an important part of the story, though it doesn't say it explicitly, but she was prohibited to go into the synagogue because he's ritually clean, but she is ritually unclean. And that's a big part of this story. You see, we say that she had an issue of blood, but that's a euphemism, right? Um, a euphemism. It's a, a kinder, gentler way of saying something. It's a way of being polite, right? So we, we teach our uh, children euphemisms about all sorts of things. Um, when I was young, we would never refer, especially in church, to a woman being pregnant. That was considered too forward. So we would say she's expecting, right? We still use that terminology. If we say a woman's expecting, we know what that means. It means she's pregnant. Or if someone, if someone dies, right, you don't you just walk up and say, hey, you know, sorry your granddad died. I mean, we don't even do that with pets. Hey, sorry your dog died. Like, we, we find gentler, kinder ways to speak, like passed away. Like, no one actually passes away. I mean, Yoda passed away in, in like, Return of the Jedi, right? He just fades and his little blanket kind of just settles down, right? But passed away. I mean, we, we teach our children euphemisms about bodily functions. I, I mean, I know you didn't expect to come to church and hear a sermon on this. But like, like Angela and I, we, we had children, we were so young. And we, we thought, no, we'll, we're going to, you know, teach our children like regular names, body parts, body functions. And so I remember Katie is probably two, maybe, like a toddler, just can barely speak. And we're at church, and uh, Angela's dad is there, and, he's, and she's kind of tugging on his pant leg, saying, I have to defecate. <laughs> and he looks at me, and he's like, decaffeinate? I'm like, no, defecate. He's like, she said defecate? I'm like, shh. This woman has an issue of blood. It means that she's menstruating. Like, in the ancient world, they didn't have, they wouldn't have known if she had some kind of internal bleeding. And she's not, she doesn't have, like, nosebleeds. That's not her problem. This woman has been on her period for 12 years, and it has placed her in all sorts of trouble. She's, all of her money has spent. She seems to be utterly alone. And according to the ritual laws of purity in the Jewish system, anytime someone bleeds or touches blood, they had to excuse themselves from worship. They couldn't come in and worship with everyone which means that women, once a month, had to excuse themselves. Like, they couldn't participate. It was these kind of ritual laws. They thought that, that, that blood, to touch it, was to kind of make you ritually unclean. And so it put her in this kind of awful position. And it's a position, not only is she kind of sick and needs healing, but she's, like, financially destroyed. And she's kind of socially ostracized. And so for her to even go out in public is a little risky. Because if people knew of her sickness, they would, they would do kind of more than just shun her. 
So as she goes out into that crowd and she starts to press through the crowd saying, even if I can just touch his clothes, I'll be well. According to Jewish law, every person she touched was also becoming ritually unclean. Because if you're unclean and you touch something, if someone else touched it, then they were unclean. Like they thought that vessels could, could commute the ritual uncleanness, but especially person to person. So she's pressing through the crowd. Every person she's touching and then every person they're touching, right? This is like those videos that you see like on the coronavirus, right? Things are going to spread. This is like super contagious, this spiritual uncleanness. So according to the law, as she reached out and touched Jesus, what should have happened to Jesus? That's not a rhetorical question. I actually want you to answer that. Yeah, he should have been unclean. But not only was he not unclean, but she became clean. And we focus often, I think, on the healing, like she was healed and she was healed. And that's an important part of the story. But not only was she healed of her sickness, she's now spiritually clean. She's fit for being back in the community. She's no longer going to be excluded. And I think this is, this is so important to how we understand sin and how we understand trouble in relationship to God. Sin Darkness, evil, has no effect on God. Sin doesn't bother God. Evil doesn't bother God. Darkness doesn't bother God. When something that's unclean touches God, it becomes clean. When someone who's hurt touches God, they get healed. When someone who's been ostracized touches God, they get included. And that's exactly what happens here. And again, Mark doesn't explicitly say that Jesus somehow remained spiritually clean. But immediately after being touched by this woman, he goes into the house of Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. And if anyone there had thought that Jesus had been spiritually or ritually unclean because of this woman touching him, they would have said, hey, Rabbi, you need to sit it out if you, you know, like you need to take a week off go on vacation, when you come back, then you can come and pray. But no, he goes immediately into Jairus' house because he's clean. And when he gets there, of course, we now have this girl and there's all these folks, we just heard the story right there morning and Jesus kind of sends them away. And then it says that they went into the room where the little girl was, which of course I think to that just sounds completely natural to us. But in that time, in that place, families, most families would have lived in one room, like the whole family. The fact that this, this man has a house that had multiple rooms, has a room like where the girl would be, suggests again his kind of status. As the ruler of the synagogue, he was a wealthy man. He had things. But we know this too, right? That this story, well, I think it does focus on Veronica, Right? That's how sandwiches are. Like um, ham and cheese sandwich is about the ham and cheese. Right? The, the, uh, a, a Reuben is about the corned beef and the, the sauerkraut. Right? right? It's not about the bread. I mean, sometimes it's about the bread. Bread can be good. But generally, sandwiches are about what's in the middle. And I think this story 
too is mostly about the woman, but it's also partially about him. Because in a lot of ways, I personally can't identify with her very well, right? I can kind of sympathize for her, but I can't really empathize with her. But with Jairus, I'm kind of the ruler of a synagogue, right? I pastor a church. I'm a Bible professor at a college. I have a house where my girls have their own rooms. You know, that's, that's me. And I, I can see my life in his life. Like, I feel like I've got it together. But one of my little girls gets sick, and all of a sudden, things seem to be out of control. There's nothing that I can do for them. Like, when Jesus turns to him, having said to Veronica, your faith has made you well, he turns to Jairus and he says, don't fear, have faith. Jairus, be like Veronica, which is an amazing thing. Ruler of the synagogue, be like this woman who had been ostracized by the synagogue. Don't, don't fear, have faith. And I think that's exactly what God is calling us to do. Like, we, t- we uh, subtitled this, the, we titled this sermon, The Life After. But we subtitled it, The Spirit of Wholeness. The Life After is speaking about what happens. It's not like the afterlife, like go to heaven and be a spirit and float around on a cloud or something. It's the life after the trouble, like it's, you know, after your kid was deathly ill, after you've endured 12 years of sickness, after things have been torn up, right? What happens then? And that's the life that I think we see here. And it's, again, it's not simply, I mean, I think we could read this story as just kind of two healing stories. A woman gets healed of her menstruating problems and a 12-year-old girl gets healed or maybe raised from the dead. It's kind of hard to see, tell exactly what's happening. She seems to be dead, although Jesus says she's not dead. But I, I kind of take that to mean Jesus is kind of speaking prophetically about what he's getting ready to do in the little girl's life. But what's happening, I think, is more than just the removal of symptoms. It's more than just, I was sick and now I'm not sick. The moreness, the, the, the wholeness that's here is that these people who, because of their sicknesses, would have been marginalized by the community are kind of made whole, kind of reincorporated into the community. And that wholeness, I think, is what we can expect in the life and the spirit, right? And we work really hard here at Oasis to make sure we're at a place or we continue to be a place that's safe. Like the gospel message might be dangerous, but this is a safe place. This is a safe place to hear it. It's a safe place for you. It's a safe place for your family and your friends and your neighbors. And we want them to come because we want them to to be a part of this. Um, the theme in the lectionary passages today is one of death and life after death. The Old Testament passage, we didn't read it, but 
It's David mourning the death of Saul and Jonathan, his best friend. And David is kind of struggling in his kind of grief and his mourning. Much like Jairus is struggling with his fear, and much like Veronica is struggling with all of her loss of, of money and status and inclusion. And the Psalms from today, even the one we read in the call to worship, the Psalms are about kind of calling out to God, not in utter despair, but calling out to God with kind of an expectation that God's going to do something, that, that, that God will make things right, that God will answer our prayers. We sang this, actually, in one of the songs that, that Beth just lead, led us in. I love this. There's this one bit. It says, by your spirit, I will rise from the ashes of defeat. The resurrected king has resurrected me. Earlier in that song, we sang the fear that held us now gives way. I love that. The fear that held us now gives way. It gives way to him who is our peace. His final breath upon the cross is now alive in me. Don't think about that one too much. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a physical kind of thing. It's a spiritual thing. It's that something's happening with Christ and his death and the life that he gives us. The life through the resurrection and the life that God gives us to, to endure the, the hardships of life and to kind of come through on the other side. We serve the God of new creation. We are filled with the spirit of wholeness. Before we close, there's a very important point that I want you to hear. In fact, if you don't hear anything else today, I want you to hear this. Everything I've said up until this point was because I wanted to say this. There's a real threat, I think, to the Christian faith in our society. And it's not atheism, and it's not liberalism, it's superficiality. We, we, are, we are a shallow group of people. We use platitudes to say things, to try and convince ourselves that it's always okay. Lots of happy talk, right? God is good all the time, all the time. God is good, except when he's not, <laughs> except when it hurts, except when things don't work out. What about those times? Right? What about when it's difficult? Um, I, heard a, I heard a sermon recently from Tom Long, a, a preacher that I really love. And he said, he said this, if, if you could walk across the river of American religious life, you'd never get your ankles wet. If you could walk across the river of American religious life, you would never get your ankles wet. What I love about our faith and what I love about the scriptures as they testify to our faith is that it's not shallow. It's deep. Like even when Judah was invaded by the Babylonians, when everything was destroyed, when all hope was lost, Jeremiah pins the book of Lamentations, a book filled with sorrow and grief, and yet, 
in the middle of Lamentations, it's only five chapters. So in the Lamentations chapter three opens with these words. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. Friends, that isn't a glib, everything is always good. We don't, we don't need to pretend like everything is good when it's not. Jairus didn't. His daughter was deathly ill and he runs to Jesus to get help. Veronica didn't pretend like everything was all right. How could she, right? She'd already lost everything. She'd been ostracized. She just needed to touch Jesus. Their faith was deep. Our problem today, I think, is that our faith is often too shallow to reach the depths of our pain and suffering. Tom Long, again, in that same sermon, tells a story about a hospital chaplain who, it was, it was Ash Wednesday, and so the chaplain had, had snuck into a church to have the imposition of ashes on his forehead before he kind of made it to the hospital. He goes into a room, and there lies the patient that he's going to visit, and the lady is one of those kind of everything's always okay Christians. <laughs> I mean, she's in the hospital, so obviously not everything's okay. But she's like, oh, it's the chaplain. Isn't this great? And she's like, wait a minute, chaplain. You got something on your forehead. And she kind of reaches for a Kleenex, and she's going to kind of wipe off the cross. And he's like, oh, no, wait. This is a cross made of ash and oil. She's like, why, well, why did you have that on your forehead? He said, after thinking for a second, this is a sign that when life goes to hell, that God is still with me. And she reached up and she touched it and she marked herself and she said, I think I need some of that. Don't we all? Die. Dead. Death. Words we would rather not have to live with. Words we do not like to utter. Words we wish would decease. So we wonder. Why would God create such a thing as death? Or did God create such a thing? No, death is uncreated because death is itself uncreation. As it says in the wisdom of Solomon, God did not create death, nor does the Holy One delight in it. The Creator created all things so that they might exist. The generative forces of the world are full of nourishment. They have no venom. God created us for incorruption and made us in the image of divine eternity. And yet, death is everywhere. Crouching behind every corner, immeasurable oceans drooling with anticipation and the allure of consumption over us. Echoing chasms, sensing our fears and inhaling the twirling of our doubts. With every mountain we climb and conquer, there is but a look down emphasizing imminent 
expiration, reminding us that life is but a wisp of vapor and that death is an end, a punctuation, a question mark at the end of the book of a beating heart. God did not create death, nor does God delight in it. And we wait. With every hug we give our loved ones, we squeeze just one moment longer, knowing it won't always be available. And we wait for that unfortunate phone call, for that unmistakable face indicating to us that it is what we think it is. And we wait for someone to do something, anything, for someone to explain to us why it's happening, for someone to help us understand why it persists. For years, we presented death on an altar in hopes of communing with the one true God. Community, immunity from death, impunity from the final breath, and we wait. But not on death. We wait on the one who conquers death. Our souls wait on the Lord. God did not create death, nor does God delight in it. But Jesus, God in the flesh, did nonetheless enter into it. Willingly, unwaveringly, he stepped into the obsidian maw of uncreation. But it could not keep him. Death could not stomach the giver of life and was destroyed from within. Having consumed its own demise, Jesus emerged and death was put in the grave. And we wait. For us, death is inevitable eminent, ubiquitous, but it's not final. It is not final. And then we wait and we sing. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. We sing all together. Great is thy faithfulness. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.